Hello and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the nuclear negotiations with Iran that are happening in Vienna. And we also take a look at the past decade of diplomacy between Tehran and Washington under Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. My guest today is Laura Rosen, a veteran journalist and a member of the editorial board of Just Security, who also writes the diplomatic newsletter on Substack. Laura, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nagar. Thanks for being with me. Laura, you've been very closely covering, reporting, and watching the nuclear negotiations uh, since almost 2012, you and I were just talking about this. You've seen the Jalili negotiating era in Iran, basically the Ahmadinejad era, the Obama era here, the Rouhani, the Trump, and now uh, the Biden team. Let's talk about today. First of all, take a look at today, where the talks are at right now. You just had a recent update as far as the status of the talks, and there seems to be another uh, stalemate. Talk about where you think the two sides, Iran and the U.S., who are not directly negotiating, by the way, but where where it seems like they're standing right now. Yes, exactly. So it seemed like, you know, the Iranians just had their election and the U.S. was sort of, you know, in, in keeping in mind their own transition and the few weeks it took the Biden team to get their Iran policy sorted out. Um, you know, they were saying we're giving them space before we get back to talks. And then in recent days, you started hearing from the State Department podium a little bit of uh, we're ready to go whenever they are, you know, a little bit not desperate, but a little bit more anxious. And, uh, you know, Iran, um, I think on on um, the anniversary of the, the sixth anniversary of the JCPOA being reached, um, inform the European coordinator that they're not going to be ready to come back to Vienna for the seventh round until after Raizi is inaugurated in August. And I understand from a, another diplomat um, in the talks that um, they're not expected to resume until mid-August at the earliest. So that delay is a little bit of a blow. And as people here are interpreting it, um, I don't know if they think it's just a matter of the old Rouhani team um, you know, briefing the Raisi team on, you know, how the negotiations have gone and what the details are. But I think some analysts I talked to believe that the Raisi team doesn't like the deal and thinks that they can do a much better job negotiating a better one than their predecessors. So we can talk about that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I wanted to talk about um, these past few months because a lot of us Iran watchers, experts, analysts were, and also on the Iranian side, the Iranian administration were anticipating the Biden administration to come into office. And there was expectation that talks would um, start or resume very quickly and that a return to the JCPOA would actually be fairly easy and fast. And it's been, you know, Joe Biden started in January and it's been a few months now and it seems like it's not as fast or easy as um, some of us expected. Talk about the past few months and especially the, the first couple of months, the delay in the Biden team, uh, what their thinking was, what the calculation at the White House, the State Department was, they were putting some staff in place, they had some uh, confirmation 
um, problems. So talk about uh, some of that and how we are at this place that seems like that window of opportunity that was closing is, is nearing its end. Yeah, you know, and I, I still think that there is, you know, reporting um, to be done and maybe maybe um, um, we won't learn about it all until um, they get Iran's program back in a box. Basically, it's all still too tense. But I, I would guess that it is was not like a conspiracy or that everyone knows exactly what happened, you know, or what shape shape the delay. Um, you know, we know that. The, in the transition between um, Trump and Biden, that the Biden team was particularly careful not to have any foreign meetings. Um, they didn't want um, the Trump people to accuse them of um, going behind their backs to, you know, one president, they were taking the one president at a time thing very seriously, partly because of all the controversy over the meetings that Trump team had when they were coming into office during the transition, right? So, so that um, kind of put a freeze, and you had a lot of activity in the space. You and I are of um, Iran watchers and people, you know, sympathetic to the Biden team and excited they were going to do diplomacy. You know, a think tank world saying, "Oh, this is what you can do, and don't miss this window." And Biden repeatedly saying his intentions to go back into the deal and then try to negotiate something better. But then you had, I think, January 6th, the attempted coup in Washington um, by Trump's people. The um, the fragility of democracy here and the parties, I think that might have been an influence actually on um, Biden's reticence to jump in on something that has a lot of partisan controversy. Do you know what I'm saying? That, um, and so, you know, even though it's fair to say, you know, in his first week in office, the Biden team said they were going to extend the New START arms control agreement with Russia, which has bipartisan support, but still, um, you know, Trump hadn't done that. So I think the Iranians were like, okay, so, you know, January 25th. And then I think. Rob Malley, the Iran envoy, got appointed towards the end of that week of the inauguration. Um, but it really, it wasn't until the end of February that the Biden team had met with the Europeans. You saw that long statement when Tony Blinken met with the, the E3 and they came out with this long statement about Iran. So it really wasn't until the end of February until they were like, OK, we're ready to come to Brussels and meet with the Iranians. By then, the Iranians were disappointed, thought that, you know, maybe Trump, uh, Biden was trying to use the Trump sanctions to get a better deal. They were interpreting things that I think were not accurate. And you saw that, you know, they didn't get to Vienna till the beginning of April. Still, if we look at the scheme of things between January 20th and April, it's not that long, right? I mean, it wasn't like a two-year window. It was, it was two months or three months. So then, you know, you had the Iran elections up till June 18th. You saw Abbas Arachi insisting in Vienna, no, the elections aren't going to make any difference and we're going to keep negotiating. He even, you know, you saw that they were voting in Vienna. And then, you know, when they went home from the sixth round, they knew there was going to be a pause until July before they resumed. But I don't think even the Iranian negotiators anticipated um, that the break would be this long. Mm -hmm. 
And you've also, in your recent reporting, um, you mentioned how some senators specifically have mentioned uh, Senator Chris Coons from Delaware and Bob Menendez of New Jersey, both Democrats, um, are not very optimistic um, coming out of a briefing on the Iran deal talks. Talk about that dynamic a little bit, especially for our audience um, outside of the beltway of how um, in Congress these negotiations and Joe Biden's approach to Iran is viewed. Because even among his own party, as I just mentioned, these two senators, there isn't necessarily a very solid consensus on this approach and diplomacy and the nuclear talks to Iran. So talk about that dynamic a little bit. Okay, so let me just say that this is not my expertise and the reporting that um, when Blinken um, was reported to have briefed the Hill um, yesterday, um, I think it was CNN that caught Menendez and Coons when they were coming out of the meeting. So it's not my direct reporting. I mean, the, the sense to me is that most Democratic members of Congress actually um, thought that Trump's maximum pressure policy and pulling out of the deal was failure. But you have some prominent Democrats, um, like uh, you mentioned, Bob Menendez, the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, um, who's you know, long been a kind of skeptic of diplomacy with Iran, although he wasn't a fan of the Trump policy either. He was somewhere kind of in between of the, um, you know, pessimist about the deal. He voted against the deal when Obama got it. Um, but, um, but he was, you know, not a proponent of Trump's policy either, something in between. Um, and I think because of his position as the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, he may have outsized influence but I don't think he actually reflects where most um, elected Democrats are, and not just progressives. I think I think that there's really very little Democratic wishy-washy. You know, they're too hugely idealistic about Iran or the Iran deal, and a lot of people, you know, are just sad that they didn't use the time of the deal itself to build on it to try to get you know follow-on arms control agreement, um, maybe work on other things. And so you've kind of wasted all this time, or Trump's people were always saying, you know, they don't want to always be uh, pussyfooting around on the other issues of concern about Iran because they're worried about the deal. But we ended up debating the deal still for, you know, four more years of their term. Um, and so I think they failed to produce anything better from pulling out. And uh, Laura, let's talk about the content of these negotiations a little bit. I read in your reporting at some point that, um, well, the request from the Iranian side basically is centered around sanctions relief. And there were three categories of sanctions, if I'm not wrong, as the U.S. side is putting it, sanctions that they think are contrary to the JCPOA, sanctions that they don't think that are contrary to the JCPOA, and then some category of in-between. And we've heard about 1,615 or 1,600 sanctions and designations of uh, persons and entities um, is something that's been uh, basically imposed during the Trump era. And we also just recently saw in a report, in a letter basically that Javad Zarif sent to the Iranian parliament that he discussed some of the offers from the U.S. side. If you can elaborate a little bit on um, what this these uh, demands are, what the Iranians want, what the U.S. is willing to do, and then also from the U.S. side, what the demand is and uh, what the holdup may be. 
So uh, let me just say that, so, you know, up until the Iran elections, um, you know, they were getting closer in their drafting of this framework on a return, mutual return to JCPOA um, or full compliance. Um, um, it seemed like they were narrowing, as you mentioned, the gaps between their positions. And so, you know, I think Rouhani's chief of staff, Bayezi, was saying in May that the U.S. has basically agreed in principle, if they get an agreement, um, to lift something like a thousand designations, a thousand fifty designations, and as you mentioned, Zarif earlier in the year had been saying Trump had made sixteen hundred designations during his term, and we need all of those to be lifted. So it seemed like the gap between you know a thousand and fifteen hundred is a lot closer than where they were when they started the talks in April, right? I think the nature of negotiations, as I understand it, is you know, you have something in your back pocket for the end, some of the harder things. Some there, You have a little wiggle room at the end. I assume that what they had at the end of May is, is not the final offer, but getting close. You know, on the U.S. side, I don't know all the details, but there had to be some um, Iranian actions because their advancements in the research and development of their centrifuges and you know, some of their technical advancements had meant that the length of time it would take them if they chose to pursue a nuclear weapon would be shorter than the one year in the in the JCPOA. So I think some of that involved um, some sort of removing of the advanced centrifuges that they had um, created under research and development, you know, and, and some way to to try to bring back the one year minimum breakout time. I know that's an imperfect measure, but that some baseline that the Americans have found important. Um, you know, I think recently in around the sixth round of talks as well, um, the Iranians had talked about they need guarantees that the U.S. wouldn't leave the deal again. And the U.S. can't. I'm sure that, you know, some people in the Biden team would like to tell Tom Cotton, if he ever becomes president, that you can't leave the deal, but they can't. They can't engineer it on the U.S. side. Right. right. And so and so that. They found puzzling and, um, you know, you heard the U.S. negotiators when they would brief us sometimes after the talks, um, you know, they would say the Iranians are negotiating seriously. They would praise the respect, respect shown between the sides. But they would also raise the question, like, do the Iranians really want to come back to the deal? Like, we're not sure. Because some of these some of these things the Iranians were asking for were politically impossible. And so the, the Americans were puzzled if they're, I think they expressed puzzlement about whether Iran really intended to go back. Um, now, I've heard that one thing the Iranians have talked about is, well, you can't give us a guarantee you'll never leave the deal again, but could you grandfather in, um, let's say that some oil company comes to Iran when the U.S. is back in the deal, can that investment be protected if the U.S. leaves the deal in the future? But but I think that the U.S. also found that kind of mechanism um, politically problematic. So I don't know exactly where that was. Now, I don't know when you want to turn to what I'm hearing about some of the people influencing Raisi's vision, um, but how they think they can get a better deal. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about that, because we obviously the new president, Ibrahim Raisi, coming out of a very controversial election, basically pre-engineered. And we've talked about this on this podcast in the past with other guests 
Um, but he comes from the camp in Iran that's been very vocal against the JCPOA and the negotiations with the United States in the past. But interestingly, um, he voiced his support uh, publicly um, for the JCPOA. And we obviously know in the Iranian system, the JCPOA and basically any major foreign policy decision has to have the approval of the Supreme Leader, which is what the negotiations on the JCPOA had. And that's why there is an expectation, uh, expectation of continuity. But so it seems like that's becoming complicated. So even though Raisi did support or voices support for the JCPOA and some continuity is expected, now it seems like some of that may be changing. What are you hearing and what is your assessment, especially given this delay that seems to be coming just now? Yes. So um, I talked to Ali Valles, um from the International Crisis Group, and he said that he had been um, watching this 90-minute interview that um, Raisi's foreign policy advisor, Ali Bagheri, um, had given in uh, two years ago, he said. And Bagheri was the deputy um, Supreme National Security Council secretary and the deputy to Jalili um, in the Akhmadinejad negotiations um, that I attended um, in Baghdad and Almaty and Istanbul in the, I think, the 2012-2013 era before Rouhani was elected. And he said in this interview that Bagheri was saying that as under their advancements of their nuclear program, that they were seeing the U.S. demands go down in the negotiations. So, so, and he was saying that, so Rouhani was the negotiator um, before Jalili, right? So he was the, used to be the Iran nuclear negotiator. So Jalili was talking about his predecessor negotiator, Rouhani, and, and Bagheri was saying, you know, Rouhani, he was basically, the critique was very much an ideological one. And to me, it reflected very much what the Tom Cottons and the Mike Pompeos and the Trump, you know, they think they're better negotiators. They think they're so much tougher than Obama. They think that they can get a much better deal from Iran. You know, it just reminded me so much of the ideological um, arguments you hear between partisans in in the American um, policy space on the Iran deal, right? And so, you know, originally when Trump was pulling out of the deal and debating pulling out of the deal. It was, uh, we're going to get a much better deal. We're going to show them what good negotiators we are, how much tougher we are. You know, Obama was so, he was so soft. He was so weak, blah, 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 blah. And and so very much what I was hearing about this Bagheri interview and having experienced um, the zero progress uh, of the negotiations when Jalili and Bagheri were the negotiators, it reflected to me that mentality, right? That we can do it better. And, and what I'm hearing is that, you know, and we're seeing some of this in recent concerns about Iran producing, um, is it uranium metal, enriched metal? I don't know the technology, but it was something of concern that apparently has no dual use cover. So, you know, you see that Iran's nuclear program is progressing all this time while the talks are going on and not going on. And I think that, what Bagheri was saying is as Iran expanded its nuclear program in the 2012-2013 period, they were having more leverage in the negotiations. 
They were getting more concessions, right? So, so I think that that is the mentality they may be coming to the table with if they come back to the talks after Raisi is inaugurated in August. And I think we may see brinksmanship on their part that, you know, there are more developments on their nuclear program that make the West have to figure out, like, are we still trying to get back into this old deal? Um, or do we have to consider some, something more drastic to avert Iran's nuclear program? And I think what I'm hearing is that, you know, the concern is that that's the mentality they may be coming in with. And you've interviewed Sarif recently. He was doing the negotiations for eight, eight years. I think they may be a little bit frustrated. They're briefing the new team. The new team probably thinks they can do it better and they're not satisfied with the deal and won't take it. So I'm, I'm hoping that maybe some of what I'm hearing of the concerns about the new team could reflect the outgoing team's frustration that the new guys think they can do it so much better. Good luck to them. Yes, of course. And I mean, a lot of this is also something we still have to wait and see how the developments unfold in Iran, because what we experience from the Ahmadinejad era and then on to Rouhani is that the hardliners in Iran had a lot of ideas about what they wanted to do, but that was very different in reality from what they actually could achieve, which wasn't anything. I mean, they negotiated for years, but eventually the deal only happened or an agreement under the Rouhani team with the Zaif team. So a lot of that is still uh, something we have to wait and see. But I want to go back to the Trump era. You briefly mentioned that and the policy of maximum pressure that Donald Trump and then later, especially with his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, pursued the pulling out of the nuclear deal and then the military escalation and the assassinations and that kind of maximum pressure, really, as they called it on Iran, the reimposition of sanctions. Talk about how those years and those policies impacted um, a deal which did survive sort of on life support, but basically brought us to where we are here. And we know that there were demands or conditions basically put on by the Trump administration for none of which were met. Basically, there wasn't any achievement of any of the administration's intended policy goals from uh, those years. But talk about those years and um, how they have impacted where we are now. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's very much you just were mentioning, um, you know, what the hardliners on the Iranian side you know, think that they produced and think they're such good negotiators, um, but then, you know, they couldn't actually close a deal, right? So I think it was very similar in some ways to Trump. I think, you know, we saw that Trump, um, you know, pulled out of the deal, thought he could get a better deal, but then he has all these advisors, had all these advisors who really did not seem to want to get to the table with Iran at all. I think they could have very much used their position, their leverage, uh, with or without pulling out of the deal, to, you know, get back to the table with Iran and see if they could get a better deal, right? But they never, Pompeo really never wanted to get to the table with Iran. And, um, you know, John Bolton, I think the same. And um, we saw at one um, G7 meeting that France was hosting, like the third year of, of Trump's term, that Zarif paid, right? Remember, and, and you could tell that there was some um, desire by Trump to, to meet Zarif and, and then it didn't happen um, you know, I think Trump just did not have the people around him um, advising him from the Republican establishment um, to to make diplomacy with Iran work because politically, part you know, for their Mike Pompeo's political ambitions, 
Um, he wants to say he pulled out of the deal and he was tough on Iran. He doesn't want to say he got a new deal with Iran, you know, and I, I felt like that was, you know, even if Trump would have wanted to get a better deal, he, I think he thought politically it was better for him um, to just be tough on Iran. And maybe he thought in a second term, if he got a second term, then he could do what he wanted. Right. But I think that he was very conscious of trying to please the part of the Republican Party and, and you know, pro-Israel right wing um, that he was pulling out of the deal and not getting a better deal. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there was never any follow through about getting a better deal or getting to the table with Iran. We didn't see Pompeo make any effort. We did see Pompeo meet with the Taliban, you know, in Qatar, which was, you know, it was just so ideologically so um, incoherent. It seems like those years were wasted, whatever leverage they created, they never used to get back to diplomacy. Um, the only good thing I think we can say is that Trump was not eager to get into a war with Iran. And um, you saw that the few times when he was being pushed to do so that he pulled back. You know, I think I think Trump didn't want a war with Iran. I think that um, he wanted to leave it for later. And, and, you know, on the Iran side, I thought they were patient. They gave they gave a year after Trump pulled out of the deal before they started lifting the limits on some of their nuclear advancements um, to try to get sanctions relief. I thought they were very patient. They telegraphed what they were doing. Um, and it's only, you know, in the past year that we're really getting into a more critical point. Mm -hmm. And um, talk about also the differences in staffing. We had someone like Mike Pompeo, like you're saying, he wasn't even interested in uh, getting to a table with Iran. Now there's a different Secretary of State with a different approach, um, Secretary Blinken, Tony Blinken. And there was also a different uh, envoy for Iranian affairs back then during the uh, Pompeo, uh, we had Brian Hook, and now we have someone like Rob Malley basically indirectly negotiating with the Iranians, which he's been involved in the negotiations in the past under Obama. Talk about um, these changes, how you also see uh, the people who are handling the Iran file and the differences with the previous administration. So I think their, their, their North Star coming into this was not like the U.S.-Iran relationship, but was let's have allies, let's work with our allies again. And very much, you know, let's line up with the Europeans, particularly, you know, NATO. Um, I was at a reception yesterday. I saw Rob Malley there and Secretary Blinken, that the French foreign minister hosted at the French ambassador residence for Bastille Day. And Sadly, it was the sixth anniversary of the JCPOA and not a great day for the deal. But, um, you know, they're very much about let's restore America's alliances. Let's be working with our European allies, et cetera, um, on this. And before they came up with their Iran policy, Blinken, um, you know, consulted for a long time with, with the Europeans, especially on where the talks were. And it was really the Europeans who helped save the deal. Right. You know, right. all these years it was limping along. Um, so. So I think that's how they're going into it. You see in all the public statements, it's not like what the U.S. is doing. It's what the U.S. is doing with the Europeans, blah, blah, blah. So um, I think that's how they're going into it. They, they're they not going to do a bilateral, you know, um, at the point in the Obama administration when Rouhani was elected, but before he was inaugurated in 2013, um, there were secret talks, as you know, um, with Bill Burns and I think Jake Sullivan and some others um, to try to sketch out how they could 
have rapid progress on a deal. And that helped feed the negotiations. But even the P5 plus one partners and the Europeans were not aware that the U.S. was doing those consultations. And that led to a little bit of tension, I think, in 2013 um, after Rouhani was in office. Some of the Europeans were wondering, well, where did they get this draft deal, right? Um, you know, where... <laughs> um, U.S. was really clear they're not going to do that this time. They're not going to have secret talks with the Iranians, um, back channel, blah, 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 because I think they just thought the political blowback, not just with Europeans, but with Republicans and the Israelis, was too high and they could be more straightforward. And I find, maybe I'm missing a huge story, but I find that they're just, you know, how Rob Malley and the U.S. negotiators say the negotiations are going, I... I kind of take it that they're giving a pretty straight account. They're not, there's not a lot of posturing on their side for better or worse. So um, they seem to be pretty straightforward. So I think one difference, probably one main difference um, between now and the Obama era is that a deal already exists. So negotiations already happen. There's something on paper. It's sort of a return to something that's, already done mainly by the same people, Rob Malley, Wendy Sherman, Bill Burns, who are sort of in this in the same administration right now. Back in the Obama time, they were just starting and trying really something that was very much of an unknown territory. I think it was a very bold move. And um, the you and I were talking about this. I want you to um, discuss this a little bit, this um, overlap or lack of overlap of the pro-diplomacy camp in Tehran and in Washington, because when Obama came into office, he had been talking about these negotiations with Iran. I remember his um, presidential debate with Hillary Clinton, uh, where he mentioned that he would even be willing to talk to the Iranians. And um, she laughed at him. It was it was considered a a ridiculous thing to say. And then he came and nevertheless he pursued, but he his presidency overlapped with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad on the Iranian side. And um, so you you had been involved in covering the negotiations and, and uh, following since back then. Talk about some of that, the differences, um, as you briefly mentioned, of the, the, the first Obama term and uh, the Jalili era, the negotiator, Saeed Jalili, um, and all the the second Obama term, which is when the Rouhani team and Zarif came in. Right. I mean, I think that's really, you know, the tragedy, the historical tragedy of uh, U.S.-Iran efforts since the, at least since I've been paying attention is, um, you know, the intentions on both sides when you have the people in power on both sides, not only with the intentions to try to cool things off or have a... a a cooling off of tensions. Um, do they have the people who can, um, who are competent, right, to do that? So there's ideology, there's competence, and all that. And it seems like there's pretty short windows, three or four years, um, when you have both on the same side. And um, um, you know, we could have the Raisi team in some ways be reacting to. Um, what Trump was doing, right? And now you have Biden willing to be more reasonable and get back into the deal and try to work something out for a longer term deal. And now you have Iranians coming in who are like, Iran gets nothing when, you know, see, we got screwed by the US. Just like, like, so it's, it's, it's really hard. It's hard to say they're wrong, 
anyhow, it's it's complicated ideology, and then it's hard on the U.S. side, probably. Um, if you're Biden, how do you go tell Menendez if uh, Iran keeps advancing its nuclear program and thinking they'll get a better deal? You know, how do you go tell Bob Menendez and Chris Coons, kind of deal skeptics in your party, um, we need to give them more, right? I mean, it, it's very, very complicated. And, um, and you know, it's really sad because, you know, is Biden going to have to take military action? You know, he really does want to, I know we've heard it before, but I think he wants to pivot to Asia. Um, I think they want to do less in the Middle East. I think they, they want to not put it on life on auto support, but, you know, I think they, they just don't want to have to spend as much bandwidth on the Middle East as the past few administrations have. And it's just so hard. Um, and I think that maybe the Raisi team is counting on that, that um, Biden doesn't want to have another war in the Middle East, right? So, and I, I'm afraid that they could be testing. Um, we could see a situation where they're testing his um, willingness or unwillingness. Um, and, you know, there's also the Iraq theater question about how long U.S. troops are going to stay there. We've seen attacks by Iranian-backed militias um, in Iraq against U.S. installations and increased drone technology. So it's it's really complicated, and um, you know I don't I don't I don't have the answer. I guess the best case scenario we could see is that when the Raisi team is ready to get back to Vienna, you know they think they can get a better deal. Maybe they think there's something symbolic. I don't know how to say it. Maybe there's something in the short term or a little bit, a little thing that they can, you know, that's what I'm hoping is that it's it's something shorter as opposed to months and months of them increasing their nuclear program and the Biden team having to decide if they can still go back into the JCPOA after all, or if they have to have a new policy. Mm-hmm. There's also um, Laura, this issue of dual national prisoners, basically Americans who are in prison in Iran. Um, we know there's at least four um, people right now, Siamak Namazi, who I believe is the longest held, his father, Bagher Namazi, Murat Tahbaz, who's a dual UK citizen as well as American, and also Emad Sharri, the most recent um, detainee. What are you hearing about these? Because back in 2015, during the uh, previous nuclear negotiations, there were secret talks basically in parallel happening on a potential, on eventually a prisoner swap. And we recently heard from Rob Malley that the US or the Biden administration wants all of these Americans freed. What are you hearing as far as any potential talks happening on, or the uh, possibility of a prisoner swap? I will say that the Biden team learned from the Obama um, experience and, and maybe from Trump as well, um, that they needed to be much more talking to the families of those detained um, from the very beginning, not leaving them out, letting them feel supported. And from the very beginning, the Biden team, like Trump, I will say, um, has been you know, very insistent that this is at the top of their radar and they, they care about this issue a lot and they've done a lot um, to reach out to the families and... Um, and assure them that this is a top priority. I think that they have said that they're pursuing indirect efforts on this. 
um, independent of the nuclear negotiations. Um, they don't, I don't think they want to have one thing be dependent on the other, which I think actually makes sense. You know, some people are like, well, how can you give them a deal if you don't get the prisoners back? Well, yeah, I, I think you need to de-link de it. Um, you know, what, from everything the U.S. is saying, it's not a direct consular to consular channel such as happened during the Obama administration. Um, I don't know if they're working through the Swiss or th through multiple third parties or, or some of the actors we saw, like Bill Richardson, who helped um, secure support for an American who was held and detained in Iran um, under the Trump administration. And I also want to ask you, Laura, about your experience, because you've been following these talks for the longest time. You're the queen of the reporting of these nuclear negotiations. Oh. And nice. um, you were covering them in person. You've been to many locations where the talks were happening. Um, I want to hear a little bit about your experience covering these talks as a reporter. And then also now that because of COVID, um, many of us, and you included, have to cover these from a distance. Talk about your experience uh, in general covering these negotiations and then especially now the differences that you're facing. Thanks. Well, I mean, it was just so striking. I was um, night and day between when the Rouhani team came in um, compared to the about two years of negotiations that had taken place before that when Jalili was the main negotiator. You know, there you would fly. The, first of all, there'd be months of negotiations about where the negotiations would be because the Iranians wouldn't go to any place that didn't, uh, that had sanctions against Iran. And so, you know, we did, they did one in Istanbul, then they did a couple in Baghdad. And, you know, it was just, it was very complicated and kind of there were security issues to get to those places. There didn't seem to be a lot of progress um, in the actual talks. And, then, you know, fly two days to get to Kazakhstan. And then Jalili would, you know, you'd be ready for his press conference and he would give like this four hour lecture on Hiroshima. And I mean, his points were not wrong, but they really just wanted to lecture the Americans mm -hmm. um, about everything they've done wrong. And I mean, it just didn't seem like they were about advancing an agreement. It didn't seem like people who were serious about getting an agreement. It was about kind of rubbing their noses in it, you know what I mean? And um, and so then Rouhani gets elected and, you know, there's Geneva and New York and Geneva and, and suddenly, like, it seems like they have a draft agreement in, like, two months. And it just, it, they were so much more serious. Zarif sat at the table um, with Kerry. And I think Kerry and Zarif, as you know, I mean, that combination was interesting. And, and I will say that's the one factor that, I think maybe missing now in the Biden team is um, you have very able, knowledgeable, nuanced diplomats, but these negotiations have not been happening at the ministerial level where, you know, people have a lot more kind of political star power and um, ability to kind of close a deal. And this, these are happening at a more technocratic level, right? Right. Where they, then they go back to capitals and get their instructions. And I think that sometimes you, what we had in the 2013 to 2015 era, era when Wendy Sherman was lead negotiator and John Kerry would come in when they needed to close a deal, 
um, with Zarif, you know, we, we haven't had that ministerial level um, yet. And I, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about, you know, are we going, you know, first of all, on the Iranian side, who's going to be their minister, even if Iraqi stays their main negotiator. Um, but, you know, anyhow, that, that chemistry we haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. And how has been covering um, the negotiations remotely? Talk about your experience of these um, recent months and how you're how you're pulling it off, basically. So, um, I mean, like you, I've been talking to people for years during the kind of Trump wilderness era when there wasn't really any diplomacy happening, you know. And so, a lot of those people are close to the people or in the, in the negotiating team now and, or close to them. And so I feel like I understand how they're thinking and they often do press comments and talk to the press. And I find them very straightforward in terms of, I, I feel like what they say publicly is pretty much what I'm hearing privately. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something. Um, and Iraqi seems to, he's very experienced on the Iranian side and you know him as well from the successful JCPOA negotiations, he actually was the number three during the Jalili time. So I think that, you know, there are these technocratic people on all these sides who have been in different administrations. So the problem is, is, you know, they're all professionals. They don't freelance and they're taking their instructions from their political leaders. So it does make a difference who the political leaders are, right? Um, it, you know, you know, Arachi's doing the limits of what he's allowed to do. And, and same, same on the U.S. and other sides. I don't think we're missing a whole lot not being in Vienna. I would like, I think, you know, for better or worse, it's it was not quick to get back into the JCPOA. Looks like there's going to be needs for talks for some time to come and um, that we'll be back um, in some sort of process at some point. Um, where we'll be able to be sitting in hotel lobbies again, maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't miss a little bit less of that. And I'm sure that some of the negotiating teams would like to see progress so they don't have to be sitting in Vienna for weeks on end without without securing this return to the JCPOA. Indeed. And we've we have talked about the overpriced espresso in hotel lobbies <laughs> in the past with Human Maj on this podcast. All right, Laura, on that note, um, I want to thank you so much for your time and joining the Iran podcast. Thank you so much for hosting me. Have a good have a good day. Thank you. That was Laura Rosen, a journalist and member of the editorial board of Just Security, who also writes the diplomatic newsletter on Substack. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.